Hey song surfers, welcome to Song Surfing. It's your friend John. Song Surfing is a bi-weekly playlist of independent music pulled from the far reaches of the internet and is a part of the Live from the Lincoln Lodge podcast network. Visit the lincolnlodge.com to explore the other shows on the network and to learn more about the venue. On this edition of Song Surfing with Friends, I'll be joined by Kevin of Kevin in Hell, who was featured on Song Surfing Episode 2. From the bio, from the garages of the Southern Californian rock scene to the after-hours jazz hangs of Chicago, Kevin and Hell tells a story of the future in the past. They are versed in the idioms of jazz dating back as far as 100 years, as well as recent innovations in rock and electrically generated sound. From this foundation, they synthesize a new sound that bespeaks of the shape of music yet to come. Comprised of musicians equally comfortable at either a jazz club or house party basement, they function as a gateway for rock and roll aficionados to behold the majesty of jazz. Kevin and Hell recently released a full-length album, Wilty Pleasures, which I just purchased a copy of on Bandcamp, and it's awesome. Kevin selected some excellent tunes for us to listen to in this episode, and we'll also be checking out one of the tracks from Wilty Pleasures. Kevin, welcome to Song Surfing. How are you? Hello, I'm off. I'm excellent. Thank you for having me. You know, I've been listening to to your new one, and I really liked uh, your first full length album. We featured one of those songs right at the beginning of Song Surfing. And what I really love about your music is how you blend genres. It sounds like you've studied straight ahead jazz guitar. I, I hear maybe influences of um, you know, heavies like Wes Montgomery or Joe Pass. But your recordings also lean in heavily on interjecting sounds that you might not normally hear in jazz uh, or, or infused in jazz. You hear elements of punk, 60s movie soundtracks, 80s electronic. Where does all this come from? Well, uh, as with anyone's sound, it comes from one's individual story as far as how they came intertwined with music. For me, I start... It started out for me as just being a rock and roll thing. I did not listen to jazz at all until I didn't start listening to jazz till I was probably 18 or 19. Whoa. And before that, it was just, you know, I was just rock and roll, kind of pl- listening to what came my way. And I started out playing in a garage band uh, in high school, the kind of thing where we would just turn all of our amplifiers up as far as they would go and just suck as loud as possible. I'm actually c- kind of worried at this point in my life because I would do that you know, six, seven days a week. I'm praying that I don't have any lasting uh, ear- hearing damage from that. I don't, know why, I don't know why at that age it just was like play loud. That just seemed like the way you had to do it. And then, but after doing that for uh, several years, I just started to, in the process of always expanding what I was listening to, I started to actually just get into jazz. And I, there were a lot of, I think a lot of groups that paved the way for me to do that. My ears just weren't open to it at first. But then when I, for, when I, when I first started listening to jazz, the things that I gravitated to was like the older jazz. Like I think I picked up a Fats Waller record because uh, Kurt Vonnegut mentioned it in the book. And that kind of got, got me started listening to the stride and the old piano players. And then f- someone at some point recommended Django Reinhardt to me, uh, because, you know, as if you're a guitarist, it's a natural thing that people are going to say, like, hey, have you checked out Django Reinhardt? And that, I think that was the thing that really resonated with me first, was the, was the Django Reinhardt and that really rhythmic style, but that still has lots of dazzling improvisation. And, of course, you find out, you know, that he was doing all those solos with just two fingers. And it's, it's like, what? The-? So the first time, actually, I, my first 
foray into jazz was I, I transcribed this Django Reinhardt solo. And it was kind of funny the way I did it because I just learned how to play it note for note. It took me just hours upon hours. And I didn't even understand the harmony. I just was playing the notes because I just, I didn't understand, you know, at that point in time, I just thought jazz was like, you just hear it and you don't think about theory or anything. You just hear these notes and you just somehow have to be so good at hearing them, you know when to change them. So I, it was a good start, but it was definitely not the wise way to approach it. And I think, uh, you know, at, for learning jazz, I never really took lessons with anybody. I never had a formal education of it. I learned it really more in the old school way of just, just throwing yourself into the music, learning solos. I'd always talk to people. I mean, I didn't, self-taught's misleading because no one's self-taught. If you're self-taught, that just means you, you're learning from the masters. You know, I was learning, from, I was learning from Wes Montgomery and Charlie Parker and Django Reinhardt and just basically reverse engineered the, the music by, I would, you know, take a song, take a solo I liked, learn how to play it on the guitar, and then figure out why every single note that they played, why did they choose that note? Like, what were they doing? Why did they come to, why does that note sound good? And then kind of, it's literally like taking apart toasters and seeing, just <laughs> look and figuring out the wiring until eventually you understand how all the pieces work. That's the process I did it, which I probably did. I, I, when I tell when I take on students in guitar, I tell them if there's a wrong way to approach learning guitar, I've done it. I think I've done every possible bad idea, wrong idea way of like learning the instrument and how to go through just every rocky road. I think I've hit before finally getting on something that worked more efficiently. But I think that was important for me that that I didn't start out on jazz. Or I mean, it's just it's this huge foundation for my sound because. As much as I go into complete jazz, and I do completely straight ahead, you know, I, I play it every every day. I'm always working with just even what people would some call traditional, even old school jazz. But the whole the whole range of it, I tried to in, in, immerse myself in. But the thing is, I since I didn't start out in jazz, there's just something that you can't. People who grow up in jazz, they tend to just hear music a certain way, and they have a certain perspective about it. And there's just certain things about not jazz that they just sometimes that a lot of times they just they just don't understand in an interest. And to me, that's you know like just about the way of the sound of things, what songs can be. And I think that's important to me because I can know I can still remember how hard it could be to listen to jazz or how frustrating jazz just as a listener how confusing it can be. And I think that's. A lot of I think there's so many jazz musicians that are great, and a lot of jazz musicians out there. There's some that are out there today that are just so fluent in playing the instrument, and the music, that they just they completely not completely, but they start to become disconnected from what like a listener who's not a musician is, right? I remember um, my first time hearing Charlie Parker uh, at a friend of mine who was in the school, the high school jazz band with me, was really into him, was always practicing his solos. And I just couldn't make any sense of it. <laughs> it just sounded like yeah. total total chaos, you know, just the the flurry of notes, the fast tempo. I couldn't get a grasp on any of it. It's, uh, it's so, a yeah, language. I can totally relate. It's a language, and if you don't speak that language, you you can't get the fruits of it. So some people say jazz doesn't make sense. It's like, well, if you saw someone speaking a language you didn't speak, and they made a bunch of sounds, do you just be a bunch of incomprehensible sounds? Would you say they're not saying anything, or would you say that you just don't understand their language? 
Right. But that can be, you know, you got to be careful with that as a jazz musician because you, I think, for me, music is not based on uh, only, you know, it's, you, you, I always think I'm aware of what my intended audience would be. And, to, and it's never people that are musicians exclusively. I actually got into like a jazz snob phase for a little bit, but I think I had to just because like I was so, I started so late on, on the instrument for a jazz musician and I had some serious catching up to do to be able to, I feel like I'm still feeling the effects of it today of just being able to like, there's a certain musicianship you want to be able to have to go and interact with other musicians. And so it was good for me to have a couple of years where I just completely zoned in on it because I had a, rework that I had to put down the foundation and, and clear out all those terrible habits musical habits that I had built just from making random guesses. But once, after I started feeling more comfortable, I, I took a step back and I realized that really I wanted to just bring everything I've done into everything I do. And that would be the, that's the foundation for it right there. Well, I really, I really like it. I think it's, um, I, I don't know that I've really heard anything like your music before. You know, I like that you're you're trying to make it from a standpoint of making it accessible for the average listener. But I think because of that, it winds up being its own thing, and it maybe I'm pushed you it, into gl- a unique area. I'm glad you get that because I f- I feel like you know the whole point of if you're going to make a record, it's got to be something unique. You know, if like if you're going to put a jazz record out, you got to think it's really hard to make a record today in a lot of ways, especially as a jazz musician. If you think about it, because you have to contend with the entire history of the music that's on record like if you put out a record you got to think about where that sits in the bigger picture of everything that's out there and a lot of people i don't don't think consider that you know if you just do if you if i'm going to put out like like i could play all these all these a lot of jazz standards but i'm not i don't want to put out a record of me just playing straight ahead jazz guitar without a new perspective on it and that's hard to do because you think about these records that west montgomery put out that you know you you name it how much has been done like by people like Kenny Burrell. And you got to think about how that record is going to stand side by side of that. And the thing, the, the you know, the secret of it is you're not going to beat them at their own game. You know, you're not going to, you're not going to do West Montgomery better than West Montgomery did. You're not going to do any of those guys better than, you know, Coltrane, Charlie Parker. So you have to always consider what, what am I going to do that's going to make it different? Because if you're playing just straight ahead jazz, which there still are, I mean, there still are people making totally great records. You have to wonder, like, how's it? You can, one way to do it is you have to kind of take the instrument further. Which mean, for a lot of people, that's what they look at. They say, I'm gonna have to do something more virtuosic. I'm gonna have to put more crazy time signatures in there, faster tempos, you know, because they're trying to build upon it that way. When I realized, I took a look at myself and my playing, and I thought, you know, I, I don't have as much as I can play the instrument, I'm still leagues behind some of these people in New York, just the athleticism side of it from what they could do and like the musicianship. I mean, I have, I'm always working on my musicianship, but there's always someone out there who could just totally kick your ass with it. Sure. So I'm looking at it like, if, if I'm going to add a record, I'm not going to contribute something new by just muscling through it stronger than someone else has. I have to find a different perspective so that I can step outside of, you know, you you can step outside of that comparison and just do something that no one thought to do and create a new sound and experience based on that. And that's, I would say more so my approach. So I've been watching um, your Instagram account for a while. 
that's I think how I originally came across your stuff. And you, you post a lot of videos of works in progress. You recording the the baseline to this, or the I think the, I've seen a, key, a keyboard video. Does that sound right? Oh yeah, it's 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 a whole smattering of a smorgasbord of, of music that ends up on there. Do you do a lot of the you record a lot of the parts yourself, or how does how does all that come together? It it really depends on the record. Uh, for the latest one, multi pleasures, I did everything, uh, everything up until mastering, which. I mixed it, did all the parts, and then I handed handed over my friend mastering. It's kind of like a proofread to make sure the sound was. I had a I had to have like one other person take a perspective on it just to make sure I wasn't in some weird sonic zone. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I usually do all the parts um, with, and I, but oh, I, on that record. But then it's some records, you know, like the the record I, I've done a, some jazz records where it's just like. You just get a band and you hit, you know, you got your tunes and you roll, and then it's just that's it. Like I did a my the last jazz record I did was we did it kind of the old fashioned way, where it was like we went into the studio, we recorded directed tape. It was two two three takes of each song, one day and half day actually in the studio, and that was it. That's the record. <laughs> Any mistakes that couldn't that you couldn't work out then, you got to live with. Which is how those old guys did it in the you know in the, in the jazz age. They just they would show up to the studio, sometimes not even knowing what they were going to play, and then just say, "All right, let's cut a record." There's a lot of funny stories actually about <laughs> from from those jazz days. Yeah, that's incredible to me. I'll indulge. I'll indulge in one. There's there's one. It's I believe the tune's "Well You Needn't," and it's with Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane, and. Before John Coltrane solo, if you're listening really closely, like if you have headphones, you'll hear you'll hear Monk go Coltrane, Coltrane, and that's because <laughs> Coltrane had fell asleep in the studio oh my during gosh. the take, and and Monk had to yell to wake him up, and then he just he, he wakes up and just comes in with a you know like with his line and right wow. on it, but it's like that's just such a complete you know that that era is unimaginable in in today's recording environment yeah the level of musicianship i mean i i do home recording and you know it's common to have to redo a part uh what 10 times or whatever <laughs> to get yeah. it right to be you know like a, a one take musician like that or three three times and you have kind of blue is it, it just mind-blowing to me yeah but see that came from a totally different musical environment you see you might not know this but i've also become something of a histor- historian in terms of uh, not just the music itself. Of course, if you want to play any music, you kind of have to become a history historian of that music. But just like how the scene of musicianship has changed over the years, and you know, those guys would play. Those guys were playing six, seven nights a week as a job. They were like on the bandstand thirty, forty hours a week, just on the regular. And it's kind of funny to think about that because today. If you look at the even some of the best musicians today, like people who are established, if they got a gig, if they play like once a week at a club or twice a week at a club, that's like that's you know considered a a very regular <laughs> engagement, right? But it was common if you go back a few decades before you and I were born, it was a common thing to play f- five nights a week at one place for months on end, years on end, and see that was. That really changed the, you know, that was such a huge difference in what that produced in the outcome of the music. First of all, you have musicians who are 
spending that much time on their instrument, but more importantly, in front of people. You know what I mean? They they would go home and practice, but some guys didn't actually. I would talk to some people. Some guys didn't even really practice that much because they spent so much time, you know, playing that they didn't have to. You know, if you put that many hours in on bandstands, like some people could just go and relax and hang out for the rest of the day and still be at the top of their game. But they're in front of people. You know what I mean? So it always had that relation to an audience then rhythmically because even if you know i think rhythmically is a big part of it but just the whole music you they're always in front of people you know people coming into a bar people coming off of work people that if they heard something they didn't like they might get mad at you i mean there's a funny story about that miles davis told in his his book about someone who came up on the bandstand and they were playing they were trying to pretend like they were cool for their girlfriend or something and was playing some really bad stuff. And, and they actually got someone from the crowd took them off the bandstand and, and beat them up in the back of the club. Because <laughs> they were like, I didn't come here to hear this shit. You know? So there was that dangerous element. And now, if you look at where a lot of the music's coming from, it's people who go to school for music and they're playing, you know, they're, they're like, they're, they're playing for like a, a band teacher or they're studying at home for their, for their college class, right? And some people can make a good sound in that environment. It's not in, inherently destructive, but there's a lot of implications for that. So, you know, we, I think as musicians, we all have a responsibility to really be aware of that, not get trapped in some pitfalls there. So y- you talked a little bit about um, your your roots playing uh, ear-destroying uh, rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, was guitar your first instrument? Yeah. And that's actually, uh, yeah, I just, I, you know, I didn't even, when I first got guitar, I didn't even want, well, I wasn't thinking I was going to even get good at it. I just wanted to strum some chords. That's why I thought, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to learn some songs I like. It'll be. Was there a band? Or I, and then it was just a big, that... oh yeah. I mean, the first, I it was like, I was in, in middle school. I liked Nirvana. That's what I wanted to learn how to play. Because I listened to it, I'm like, this isn't that hard. I can learn how to do this. <laughs> That'd be fun. Yeah, that was my. Uh, that's what got me playing guitar too. I imagine a whole group of people. It's kind of funny going back and listening to those, those Nirvana guitar solos uh, today. He's actually he had some cool ideas, so I'll give him that. It's funny to me. It was frustrating, you know, when I was a teenager, how much people would shit on Kurt Cobain's guitar playing, <laughs> like he was the worst guitarist. But yeah, I mean, he did. He really could go in a direction that you didn't expect, and could kind of weave in and out of uh, tonality and atonality. Yeah. But I mean, that whole thing, it was coming from a different, you know, it was all about the song and the sound of the band and the sound of the song, right? You know, I listened to a lot of like, and then I later got into the Pixies and groups like yeah. that. And so for me, that's what, you know, my whole start in music was, you know, I listened to Jimi Hendrix young as probably like every teenager does. And I still appreciate that. But for me, it wasn't like, you never really thought of like the guitar as like an instrument that would even exist outside of playing with with a band, with a rock band. You know what I mean? Like if I had to play something by myself, I had I would just like do some riff as if I was playing with the band. You know? And so, it, but but that was important. I think that was an, that has a huge bearing on what I do today because I still can understand that perspective of like, okay, put the guitar aside and what's the song? Because you know, there's there's two ways of looking at it. does the song support the instrument and the solos or is the solos and the instrument going to support the song 
And you could kind of go either way. I mean, if you sometimes it's interpreted where the song's just a launching point for the soloist to do their thing. But if that's the only thing, you lose the ability to have the song being supported by the instruments. Yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. It, it makes me think of um, probably my favorite jazz artist is Mingus. And his compositions never sounded to me just like a vehicle for improvising. And even the improvisations... I'm not sure how much he dictated, you know, what was played, but even those, the improvisations on his his record sound composed. Yeah. You know, one of the things I really love about Mingus's approach to, to putting, to, you know, directing the group was I feel like he had such, he, uh, first of all, of course, he had just those beautiful, you know, wonderful themes like, you know, Peggy's Blue Sky, Peggy's Blue Skylight, Reincarnation of Lovebird. You know, that's, one thing you got to have, you got a beautiful melody to start with. And then I like the way he would really, that he would use the free jazz elements would support the song. There would be a contrast. It would be like, if you go, you know, if you go see one of those painters, I go to the, the art institute all the time, maybe a, a, a easy accessible ex- example would be Edward Manet, not Monet, who would have that combination of like highly detailed with something that just become less detailed and like out of focus in a way, but that serving to put together a bigger picture. I mean, I dig, I dig free jazz too, but sometimes I got to be like in the certain mood. Like if I'm going to listen to Coltrane's Ascension, that's a certain kind of experience that I got to be like, that's not going to happen to for me every single day. Right. Uh, but to just go in that full blown free jazz zone. But, but then, but I was saying with Mingus, he had this, like, this wonderful sense of, weaving that into a bigger tapestry to create a story. And I dig that. So you brought in some, um, some songs for us to listen to today. So how did you go about putting this list together? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I'm, I was focusing on people that I thought don't have the recon- due recognition. That was the theme for me. Uh, picking the actual songs was really hard. I basically just had to like just throw up like... Uh, for the first one, the Vegas track here, I I could have picked almost any song of his. It was I just knew there was going to be no way I was going to narrow it down to one because I really just like every song he does. He just there's they're all hits to me. And the pick so picking one, I was just like I literally just picked like this is a good one. <laughs> I there you know, but why why I picked them actually? So I do know uh, Vinny from back from high school, and I still keep in touch with them. So maybe there's a bias alert, but. I really just would, I think he makes such great music and he's based out in LA. I just, I think it's the quality of a kind of thing. He has a consistency about it that I think he could be on a much bigger level as far as recognition. So I was hoping just, he took this as an opportunity to to soapbox and that's the theme with all these tracks I picked. Yeah, I really enjoyed listening to them. The first one that we'll hear is Vegas with the song I Still Know. And it's from the album, Have a Good Summer. Um, So I'm going to play the first three, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more. All right. So many things I'd say to you And all of them would still be true But they wouldn't matter much 
seems that love has lost its touch
In the Key of Q is a new podcast series featuring music and conversation with queer musicians from around the world. Musicians like Soulful, Ty McKinney. Musicians like suburban pop king, Matt Fischel. And musicians like rapper, Theism. That's In the Key of Q, available on all the usual podcast providers. What's up, everybody? This is No Repeat, a music podcast where we pick three songs every week with no repeats and no do-overs to create a perfect playlist for every occasion life throws at you. And to help curate the playlist, we take listener suggestions from songs that take over the world to best karaoke songs. And finally, to wrap up the whole package, we do notable B-sides, which are songs that were oh so close to being picked, but just didn't make it. Learn about three new songs every week on our podcast, No Repeat. Available everywhere you get podcasts.
Yeah, I'll throw it a little bit. So uh, with the Vegas track, that's the last song off of Have a Good Summer. And he's one of those, he makes records where, I th- you know, somehow when you, when, you, when you put a record together, you got to think about what the ordering of the songs are. And that's not an exact science, but you think about the flow, like what's going to open it. The key things are what's going to be open it and what's going to end it. That's an ending one. And I don't know, ending tracks could be like its own genre, like last albums off of songs, off of people who've thought about the tracks. He's someone who, I've never actually talked to him about this, but I could just tell by listening, he's someone who thinks about the order of songs because I feel like his records, like the last track, it's like, that's a last track type of track you know what that feeling yeah. is i don't know if, if if people now only listen to spotify and you know playlists i guess that that sort of experience of last track off an album might be fading into out of existence but that i hear people say that and i just can't identify because i i can't stand listening to just singles like i'm totally into albums and i like the album experience well there's a time and place for it it's like a radio experience if you're doing your own radio but yeah you gotta you gotta still sit down and swallow the swallow the thing that'd be like if i only read books two pages at a time (laughs) (laughs) all right cool so here's what vegas told me about the song this is from have a good summer released on refry records in 2019 drums by miles rattrell everything else by me i mixed it and carl saff mastered it the album is heavily influenced by country tinged 80s la punk a la gun club flesh eaters etc it's got some paisley power pop influence as well it's basically an album that loosely spans the end of a relationship with a few moments of hope which are ultimately dashed by the reality of its impending doom refry records is run by miles and i were basically in every release except for denim skull i believe second in the block was I don't know if you could hear that, uh, song surfers, but I have Google Translate up here to help me out with pronunciation. Let's listen to that again. I'm sure that was perfect. Um, which is a project of Danny Kendrick. The song was Comfort of My Home, and it comes from the 2019 album Too Small. What a cool song. I love the sound of the recording and Danny's shout-sing delivery. Yeah. So the, the funny... Danny is, I have bias alert, is also someone I know. And actually, one of the first projects I did in high school was with him on drums. He was just always such a natural musician. I just remember we were like almost intimidated by him in high school, just in terms of how musical he was. You know what I mean? Like, he would always say he's the kind of drummer where you never had to tell the drummer, like, oh, play the beat like this. He just always knew what to do. He started out as a drummer and then quickly learned pretty much every instrument plays guitar, keyboard, and I, th- I believe on the track there, he plays everything. Um, and that that song actually has a kind of a funny story be- behind it because I was actually just, I was t- sending him back emails back and forth one day a, a couple of years ago. And I had just, someone had just showed me R. Stevie Moore, uh, which you may be familiar with as the guy who's famous for putting out like just decades upon decades of, of home produced bedroom power pop rock songs it's got no, something I'm nice not familiar on. but i'll have to check that out it's inter- it's just this guy i think his dad played like for was like a session musician and he just just for decades just had like a tape machine and just put out like i don't even know how many records just you know thousands of tracks and of all over the place and he actually i, I was getting to it because he wrote some really great songs 
And he has this one song called uh, I Like to Stay at Home. And I just, I liked it. So I sent it to Danny. I'm like, oh, have you heard of this? He had already heard of it. I'm always, you know, I'm always like late to the game when it comes to rock acts. When I talk to my friends, I'm like, oh, I just discovered, oh, I'm guided by voices. And people are like, yeah, I've been listening to that for 10 years. I'm like, okay. Yeah. I just heard the Beatles. Yeah. Heard <laughs> I'm that guy. Uh, so I sent him the track. I like to say at home and he, and he sent me, he goes, Oh, he goes, that's, he goes, yeah, I knew about this. He goes, but that gave me an idea cause I was working on this track. So then he did comfort of my home. So he kind of took the same theme of the song, which is staying at home and had his own completely different Danny take on it, but kind of got the same spirit. So any, again, Danny is another one. Uh, he actually lives in France, France right now, which explains the, incomprehensible French title there. Uh, <laughs> he just, I've, I really like the stuff he does on his own. He, he works a lot, you know, as like, he goes on, he's a drummer, so he'll do sessions and tours out there. Uh, but he just, over the years, he doesn't even release half the stuff he puts out. I have to like, I'm like an archivist with him because if he sends any, if he sends it to one of my friends, you know, we kind of have like a club where we 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 circulate all the tracks because sometimes we'll like make these great tracks and only send it to one friend and then forget about it. And then, you know, I'll like I'll talk with my other friend and be like, "Oh, did you have this song?" We like trade him like, you're "Like, oh, do you have this song?" No, I've never heard that one. Then he's you know he'll send it to me and be like, "Wow, this is this is amazing." And you know, half of them aren't even he doesn't even release. He put out this that record and one before that. I think there's only two that he's put out, but they're both just some of my favorite songs if like desert island record if i were caught on an island i would take probably that record the french words whatever it is take that with me that's so cool that uh you you distribute his his songs among the friend (laughs) you mentioned um that uh you clicked with him as a drummer and it uh it just reminded me you know just playing in in rock bands over the years what a special experience that is when you when you hook up with the drummer that you have real chemistry with oh yeah just everything suddenly is easier and it's funny too because in high school i didn't even i I mean i was totally appreciative but i also just had no other experience to contrast and like the idea today of like having being able to play six days a week with a great drummer just let and you know we had no idea what we were doing sometimes just turning up and i think that was kind of what a a predecessor to me playing jazz because we would just even if we didn't have a song to play we'd get together and just start playing something and see what would happen. Just a lot of experimentation like that, uh, which is a lot about what jazz is about, what we're doing in a rock and roll sort of way. So yeah, to, to be like, oh, wow, to just work with someone like that and to, be, and to be able to work with them so regularly. Now it's like, I get to work with great musicians, but everyone's got a schedule. People got their job or kids. So you're like, you got to be like, all right, can we rehearse? Can we get a rehearsal? In? I, if I get like one, when my band plays live, if I get one rehearsal in before a gig, that's great. We're good. <laughs> so third in the block was Grit by saxophonist Greg Ward from the album Touch My Beloved's Thoughts. The album came from a collaboration between Ward and choreographer Anya Azuzu, in which they were commissioned to create a work combining music, dance, and drumming inspired by Charles Mingus's works of ethnic folk dance music, and in particular, his masterpiece, The Black Saint and the Sinner Lady. In crafting Touch My Beloved's Thoughts, they chose to reference Mingus's time and rhythms, runs and melodies, structures, and signatures. So how did you choose this one? Yeah, so I don't remember the first time I met Greg Ward exactly. I mean, 
or when I first became aware of him, I, he used to re- run this jam session at the Hungry Brain in Chicago. And that session to me was just one of the, the coolest things I've, you know, go, was going on because I would go just to see him play. I mean, him, he would play with different groups every week, but he, this guy, this guy is just, there's a lot of great musicians in Chicago, but he was the first person I saw here, or maybe not the first, but one of the most potent people where you, you see them play and you say, wow, this is what jazz felt like in the jazz age. You know what I mean? Like, that electricity, there's just something completely ineffable when that goes beyond just virtuosity or people playing well, people playing fast. I mean, you could see that, and that's definitely a great thing to check out. But he's one of those guys that has that element, but just has such a understanding of the big picture of the music that it can really just create some 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 magic that I didn't even know could be done live. And I mean, to make that more specific, he would take songs, he'd take like a he'd take a standard tune, and I've seen him with th- with a three piece band turn like one tune into a symphony as far as like having different sections and completely different moods and textures going on and with just com- and just completely improvised, you know, just like the like the depth of a symphony, like a Stravinsky piece on the fly with just with the standard tune that everybody knows, you know, that so that's, uh, that's what got me interested in him. And then uh, around that time I met him, he had done this, this touch my beloved thought, uh, project, which I actually saw him perform a couple of times with the full band. He did it once at millennium park and another time at, uh, another jazz club. And I thought I was really, that kind of, knocked me out too because that piece I f- the whole record the whole thing I feel like A it's it's a wonderful thing to, I, I'm a huge big band fan I mean I haven't got to it yet but in, in terms of talking about it just yet this conversation but believe me I'm about to unleash upon <laughs> on big bands <laughs> Look or sp- specifically like Duke Ellington uh, of just having like a rhythmically like a strong rhythmic background with all these beautiful textures and to see him, to see that whole piece was just, you know, I was just, my mind was blown by that. And uh, I eventually, you know, I, I would hung, I hung out at the Hungry Bane a lot, got to know him. He's a super wonderful human being too, on top of all of that. Like some jazz, I mean, I've never met, I've never had a bad experience with a jazz musician. I hear stories and people in Chicago talk about like so-and-so vibe. That's what they say, vibe. Like I'm getting, I got vibed by so-and-so there'll be sometimes musicians and they people get like an experience where they feel like it's antisocial or negative. Uh, it's just because some musicians are weird. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. You just got to understand people because I've talked to these people, like the same people who have been known for, that who other people talk about as being, you know, harsh. And I've had wonderful experiences with them. And yeah, just I mean, as, some of us get into music because we're not good with people. <laughs> And it's not, and they didn't like me because I was like such a great person on the bandstand, you know, like I, I feel like, you know, I get by, but I'm not, I'm not the kind of musician that when I get up there, all the other musicians are going, damn, look what he's doing, you know, because <laughs> there's just, you got some real talent to go by, but just meeting with those, so, but you know, some, so some people are kind of more distant, uh, 
little harder to get, you know, they just, they're just not as like ready to talk about, ready to talk to whoever, whatever random person walks up and be like, Hey man, sounded great. Can I, Right? how'd you do that? <laughs> you know, some, I could understand why some of those musicians aren't in the mood for that. But Greg is just like the warmest, you know, he just, he listens on the bandstand. He listens off the bandstand. There's just like zero pretension, zero, you, you literally could not find, I don't think you could find anything negative say, say about him. Uh, and then I was lucky enough to do a record with him. I did a, a you know, I called him in. I, I said, hey, I got, I got these tunes. Would we, you know, we'll just go in the studio and record them. He's like, yeah, man, cool. And we did it. And he sounds. So which one is that? That's called Stairway to the Vast Realm of Possibility. Is that one on Bandcamp? I don't remember. I believe it is. It's buried down there. I've put out so many different things that my, my own Bandcamp page is like a, you have, it's a cluster of, of loose clutter. <laughs> oh, I'm going to give that a, give that a you listen. Should, sure. You should, you should hear the job you did on it. I mean, he played so beautifully. So y- you mentioned that his, his playing sort of transcends what the average player can do. I mean, I just learned every time he get on bandstand, bandstand, I would make a point of catching every time. I still make a point of catching every time I can and just paying full attention. Cause he's, even though I can't do it on the level he can, he just a lot of the ideas of how to interact with the band, you know, I'm, I'm just. So I've been talking with uh, previous guests on these uh, song surfing with friends episodes about their songwriting process. Um, the guests I've had so far have been singer songwriters. You're my first jazz musician and my first composer of instrumental music as well. And so talking about their process, you know, it really varies from person to person. Some have a, a strict routine that they fall back on if, uh, to get the ideas flowing or to finish the song. Some set out, uh, like recently I talked to Cassidy Watts and she was talking about um, a lot of times she gets started on or finishes a song by setting out to do a specific thing with it, whether it's writing you know, an upbeat tune or something that's sort of in this specific uh, style or genre. Um, so how does the process work for you or does it work? Oh, it works in many ways. This is now, this is the topic where I could literally just talk for hours upon without even stopping. So I'll try to be as concise as I can. Uh, first off, I have not experienced, I'm not even, I'm not even worried about jinxing myself right now. I have not experienced writer's block in years. I don't even remember what that feels like. To, I mean, I kind of remember, but it just, I've, I've created, I've structured my entire life really in a way that is conducive to just constant melodic and harmonic ideas. And in doing that, uh, there's just a complete wealth of material out there to make songs out of always available. Or to say, put it this way, I don't feel that people really compose songs so much as they discover songs. You know, under and I'm not the first person to say that. Kind of similarly, like like math. You don't. I don't think you create math. You discover math. And mm, right. so the understanding that the process of the the fundamental process of creating song is about putting about understanding what listening is, all the all that listening entails, and understanding how to listen, how to listen to yourself, how to listen to other music, how to listen to other people, how to listen to everything in life and then when you've put yourself in a state where you're ready to listen then all the ideas are just there you just tune yourself in and you just simply like 
let the ideas like I don't I don't try to write songs anymore. I and I write more songs than I can. I usually write more than I can get around to recording. I mean, we put this last one I put out almost feels old to me because I currently have like three or four more records fully recorded that I've done since then. And I have like more notes that I, that I could be turned into songs. It's kind of, for me, it's like gardening when I, as far as a specific project goes, because I work, I'm always just, I'm always just trying to catch the moment, the inspiration for a particular sound. So rather than thinking I'm going to write this type of song or something like that, I have ideas. And sometimes I think, you know, like that will usually be the birth of a project, like the one, the Wilty Pleasures record, I was just thinking about an aesthetic with that sort of 80s synthy with with like danceable type of beats and thinking about how I would interpret that with all the beauty of jazz harmony and those lush chords and types of things that, that jazz offers. And I was thinking about how to combine those two. And so I'd get an idea, you know, I might get an idea. I'll just, I'll just wait till I hear something, a little fragment of a song and then I just make a note of it, record it. I try to get as much as I can when the inspiration's gone. You know, sometimes you can work out the whole song right there. Sometimes you get one part and then you come back and you get another part. And then just as soon as I start to feel a little burnt out on it, just switch to another thing, leave it there. So it's kind of like, you know, you got a bunch of seedlings of songs like, oh, here's. So sometimes I just got, you know, I'll just wake up a number of songs I've written uh, in dreams. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you, you're you're in a dream and you hear music and you realize it's not a you're not hearing something that you already know it's a song that you haven't heard before and sometimes i get the experience of uh hearing it very clearly as if i'm listening to it on like a speaker and then the trick is to wake up and put it down before you forget it cuz if you sometimes if like i have to i'll have to like wake myself up, up out of the dream and pick up my guitar and make a voice memo of it. Because if I go back to sleep, probably by the time I wake up again, completely forgot it, you know? Yeah. It's like a, a real gift that your subconscious mind gives you. That's really cool when that happens. But it's Yeah. And it's there for, the thing is it's there for anybody, but you got to start thinking about how to live your life in a way that's, that you're going to gather all those moments, you know, that you can put, that you can have those moments flowing through you where you just hear like, and so, you know, lyrics, if I'm writing lyrics, I'm usually just kind of putting down ideas as they come to me, sometimes two lines at a time. And then when I, sometimes if I have to put a song, I figure out where things fit together. And uh, where individual composition comes from can come from any number of places. You know, sometimes I sit down at the piano just because the, the layout of the instrument is different and it's going to make you think of different things. And all of a sudden I'll hear I'll just hear, you know, you just hear something. There's a feel, there's just a certain feeling when you're playing and you go, ah, that's a thing. That's a song right there. That's the seed of a song. You just know it when it hits you. And and a lot of that for me, it, it comes from, from approach, approaching jazz. That was the, the really big thing is that jazz improvisation is often defined as spontaneous composition and performance, which is a huge demand. If you think about that, to actually perform something as it's, you're creating it, you know, it's, it's, it takes a lot of, that's why you got to put the time in. Cause it takes a lot of technical, you know, focus to have your body be able to respond to actually, you know, creating, having idea and actually executing it. And so my pursuit of jazz, which is where the, like my day-to-day thing is I'm, I'm playing jazz 
and whether I do rock and roll, you know, I come to it and because it's just, it's just like, it's just like turning on the faucet of water for ideas for me. You know, I could take, you look at all the different ways you can improvise big and small and everything I do, the way I approach the instrument is based on, you know, melodic creation. So even if I'm doing something that's like just train my muscle for a little bit, or if I'm doing that type of exercise, I'm still thinking of it musically, melodically, like how can I create like even a little simple melodic game out of it to make it interesting and fresh. And then when the more you having done that so much, it's just like, that's how I tuned my inner antenna, as you might say, to having, to being so receptive to all these ideas coming in. And so, you know, that being kind of like just my day, my day, my daily life, I just have constantly have ideas to work with. And then eventually they start to focus more and more to the point where I get to record them. And then have a few recordings and I try to organize my records to be at least coherent within themselves. But they're then, you know, once I finish one record, I'm on to something that's a completely different sound. Like the one that I did immediately after Wealthy Pleasures, which hasn't come out yet, is almost like a complete reversal sonically. It's all uh it's acoustic guitar driven with live drums, you know, just more of that sort of natural live musician sound as opposed because I wanted to change it up after doing so I think the um, with the ideas flowing constantly, probably editing is one of the big challenges. I would imagine. Yeah, it's it's vertical integration, like the Carnegie Andrew Carnegie model. Uh, I've spent a lot of time learning how to record and how to mix because that was crucial to me. I realized that the way I wanted to work was I didn't want to just have to cram a bunch of ideas together and pay you know a studio rate and get them all down. I was like. And specifically, one of those things that goes back to the rock I listen to is I'm very picky, although I haven't always been successful with every record, now I've gotten a lot better, about the sound of it. You know, to, to me, there's just, there's a lot of, there's, it's, you got to be careful with the, with the recording techniques today. There's a lot of great records that just have a terrible, or it's, it's not, to me, it's terrible. It's not technically terrible, just the sound of the recording. You know, people like these super clean, like, it's like getting like a imagine getting your headshot with a digital camera and like every detail is there and it's all like lined out perfectly, right? And it it loses so much character and life to it that when you listen to those old jazz records or old rock records, that was to me such a big part of the sound. You know what I mean? Like I I was yeah. I liked I was I definitely like when I like listen to rock uh, rock and roll. I like that lo-fi. That's why I mentioned Guided by Voices. They do that where it's just like. It sounds see like a jazz musician could never understand that like having a recording sound shitty on purpose. <laughs> and to me, I I can hardly understand why they want it to sound so clean. I just love that that warmth and that sort of mystery that it creates. It, it really is a mystery. Like if you listen to those Alan yeah, the sure. big the big one for me, the biggest group in my personal appraisal is, is Duke is a Duke Ellington orchestra. And if you listen to those 40s and 30s records there's just a sound that you have all these parts that blend together and then on the record it blends together in a way that creates this other this otherworldly sound that you know it's not live it's a totally different sound but it's actually cool as its own completely different world and i think a lot of people you know there's a lot of people appreciate the the quote lo-fi thing and i think we gotta give it some love 
Yeah, we're not putting uh, Duke Ellington's old records through Isotope. <laughs> yeah. What do you use to record? Uh, I use a lot of different things. So I do record. So when I talk about these sounds, a lot of people think, oh, you like analog. Well, that's what the sound that they associate with analog. And I do actually, I'm right now sitting by my Tascam Porta Studio, which is an eight track cassette deck, a beautiful machine that I've been working on a record. I, I, I was just about to buy one of those. Oh, I love, I love it. <laughs> I had, I had a, it was a funny story of learning how to get it working. Turned out I was using, make sure your tapes are not bleeding out tape. Otherwise you'll think your machine's broken. Long story short. So I have that, that the cassette thing, which I'm doing for a record and I do all, I come back cause I like it sound. And I also actually have a reel to reel, like a half inch one. The I just finished the real half inch uh, tape record, and then I, I have digital too. I mix on the computer because I'm starting to. I finally kind of realized that the sound I like tape gets you there, and I love working with tape because it just has the sound, so it's a great place to start with. Um, but if you really know what the sound is you want, you can do it with computers too. Uh, it's harder though because you have to be really clear about what you want, and you have to be able to make you know the decisions to to help you get there. Whereas with when you start with tape, um, you got it, you know it's already got that nice sound, and then you just have to put it together to mix it so it comes out clearly enough. Yeah, well, it's you approach it with intention. I think that that's the the hardest thing for people who are working only in digital who start off that way is you, you just have so many, so many options, you know, you just want to try everything. Yeah. And you got to make it some bold choices. You got to throw away a lot of stuff. See with, with, when you, when you record on tape and then you get to mixing, it kind of feels more like you're adding things, you're adding fullness, you're adding sparkle. And then when you start with digital, you're throwing things away. And sometimes, and sometimes you got to throw a lot of stuff away. That seems, and you're, you're doing it. And you're like, oh, is this too much? Am I throwing this away? No, it's got to go to get that if you want that feel, you know, a lot of people, they go jazz. I think jazz records are particularly on this, in this vein these days in my book, which is, I hear a lot of great records where it's just, and it's so clean. It's so tech, you know, they go to a high end studio. They record through great material to really, you know, wonderful gear. It's all done very well, but it just like, it's missing a, a sparkle warmth, like a, that feeling that, you know, that, that the old records have and that, that I love. You sing on the new, on the new album. Uh, is that something you've been doing all along or is this something? Uh, no, I've been doing, you know, I started out, you know, we had a band, we had a rock band starting out in high school. And of course somebody had to sing, you know, <laughs> some, we weren't doing, you know, instrumental music. It took, I, that was like a thing. I started out with listening to music, instrumental music itself was a mental block. And I think it still is for a lot of people today to like listen to music without somebody singing. Uh, I actually heard someone quip, singing is a trick to get people to listen to music to longer than they would have otherwise. And kind of mm. that's where you were just like, okay, someone's got to sing. And basically I, I don't know exactly how it came. Basically I lost like a rock, paper, scissors match or something like that. I was the last one. We didn't know who's goes and who's gonna sing in the band, and I ended up like, okay, it's got to be me. So I had to figure it out. <laughs> um, I've it's been an interesting journey because when I I started once I developed my jazz ability to a certain point, I got I love instrumental music and I could go, you know, days or weeks at a time listening to instrumental just instrumental music, and so I always like to work in that. But I really I mean I I really like 
singing too. I like listening to people sing. I like a song that's built around words and not instrumental. I, you know, I definitely love that realm of it. So it's been tricky because I've, I'm not a naturally gifted singer by any <laughs> means of what that phrase could mean. So I've had to uh, put some time into figuring out how I'm going to sing. And that's one of the things I really like about rock that jazz doesn't offer so much is rock has this wonderful thing of people who can't sing that make great songs. And that it could, like, it just totally works. Like Jimi Hendrix, I would say, is someone who couldn't sing, quote unquote, but really he could because he understood how to put that into a song and make it as meaningful more meaningful than someone who would have a lot of technical ability. And that's such a wonderful side of it, you know, especially with like the punk rock thing or post-punk and all all those bands where it's like, they're not Frank Sinatra or they're not Billie Holiday. Billie Holiday, I would consider the greatest vocalist ever recorded, but they found just a limit. They found like how to make it fit what they do again, having it support the song and having it all kind of wrapped up. So it's just that. So when I'm singing, I'm trying to think about like making it fit, but then it's a, it's for me, it's a, it's a battle because I'm with these, all these like multi pleasures was a really tough one. It took me just so many takes of each track to get the vocals even to where I find they're passable because I was really trying to, you know, I was hearing these melodies that I could play easily on the guitar or, and I was like, okay, that's what the melody is. I'm hearing this as the melody. Now I got to get my voice there, you know? So I took a lot of, a lot of practice. And then I, I've come to appreciate now the the benefit that singing has just for playing. And even if I'm playing guitar, I appreciate the exercises of singing. Like if I sing a scale, because it just helps get your ear so much in tune with the music that I find that if I'm, you know, sing, if I'm singing these notes and thinking about what they are, I'm getting that much deeper of an understanding of those notes that I would use if I were improvising. And so like doing something like where I could, working towards like singing like a scale just from you know my memory or from my visualization of that scale gives you a deep connection that when you're playing you just have you just feel each little color of each note that much deeper which is such an important thing to being able to improvise melodically so there's definitely there'll definitely be more singing to come and hopefully I'll get better at it as I go (laughs) yeah it's it's the goal right to get the playing to be as as natural and second nature as singing or speaking yeah. would be. It, it makes me think of somebody like uh, like George Benson, you know, who could sing his solos yeah. and, and sing sing uh, even more beautifully than he could play. Oh, he could play it pretty damn beautifully, though. <laughs> I mean, he's he's George, George Benson's a funny one. I dig. He's he's like one of those guys that's like I can't describe it. It's like it can be so crazy and cheesy at times, but. Then he's got that side that's like, like I, I didn't really like it that much when I first listened because I thought it was like, I just, it wasn't my my vibe. But then he's got that other side where, you know, what where, where they call Bad Benson and he got that title for a reason, you know. He does like, <laughs> he does White Rabbit, like that's psych, like a psychedelic rock tune. It's kind of the vibe of someone who yeah. probably has never done drugs playing psychedelic music. It's <laughs> it's, its own little world. Well, Kevin, thank you for being on this episode of Song Surfing. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Uh, oh, yeah. Let me just talk about... There was one thing I want to talk about the song the, that was featured. Well, I'll try to keep it short. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The whole concept of that record, I think just one thing I forgot to say, was, was taking the message of Duke Ellington 
which is you have a band that could equally play as well as a concert hall playing, you know, like Carnegie Hall and then go to like a back, back, you know, alley dance hall, same band, same night. You know, they were that versatile. And without, and also importantly, showing that you don't have to sacrifice any of the deep musical side and to make it relatable in like a three minute song, a four minute song that someone could enjoy that isn't, you know, a, a music scholar. So I think that's one of the most important lessons in music of of creating songs there. That's the top of the list. And Ellington was such a perfect example. So this whole record, including this track, was just about how can I bring all that musicality that jazz and classical and all these genres have and then just distill it, like cram it into a three, four minute song that someone who isn't going to care about extended chords is still going to have something to interact and connect with. So that's what I want to say. And that really is cool. It's this modern sounding music that that you've made and it draws that connection, that influence from music from the 20s, I mean, 30s? 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, really all yeah. of it because all of those guys, every decade there's something I'm checking out. Yeah. Uh, yeah, plugging. Uh, yeah, well, I don't really, you know, just check, hopefully if you're... Without anything I said sounded coherent. Uh, to plug, plug my uh, uh, just my if you check in with my Bandcamp or I do put stuff on Instagram uh, because I just have a lot of I don't have anything I have so many things to plug that I I don't even want to start listening up. So hopefully if you get in touch with like the Kevin and Hell any of the pages or I have an email list. Um, hopefully you'll you'll just get in touch with that and you'll see all the things coming out because. Uh, there's there's a lot there that I'm doing. Song Surfers, I'll put the links for Kevin's Bandcamp and his Instagram. You definitely should sign up for his mailing list. Uh, he's got a way with words. All of his emails are uh, clever and funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I always get a kick out of out of them when they show up in the inbox. Yeah. Um, and check out all all of the Kevin and Hell music. There's a huge amount of variety. And although as a guitar player, I'm impressed by all the guitar playing. There's just a, a lot of tunefulness, a lot of you know, catchiness to the melodies. Um, it's just fun music to listen to also. Kevin, I appreciate you being on the show. It was great, great to get to know you a little bit. Yeah, thank you so much for taking your time to do this. I appreciate it.
Hey, Song Surfers. I mentioned at the top of the episode that Song Surfing is a part of the Live from the Lincoln Lodge podcast network. One of the shows on the network that you should give a listen to is Chicago Fight Club. Chicago Fight Club is a show about conflict. Comedian MC Lightsey and the rest of the Fight Club team chat with, or rather interrogate, Chicago's best up-and-coming comics about anything, tackling current issues, life perspectives, and why they're still mad at their dads. Recorded live at the Lincoln Lodge Theater, check out Chicago Fight Club. There's always something to fight about. In case you missed it, there's a Song Surfers mailing list you can join for occasional news from the world of song surfing. For U.S. listeners, I'm giving away stickers to all who sign up, but everyone, of course, is welcome. Info for that can be found at songsurfingpodcast.com and on the Facebook page. Speaking of which, if you're not already following Song Surfing on Facebook and Instagram, come on over. All you have to do on either app is search Song Surfing Podcast. There's a Spotify playlist that has a whole bunch of the songs that are featured on Song Surfing. You can find that either by searching Song Surfing Podcast on Spotify or check out the link that is in the show notes. If you like the songs and artists that you're hearing on Song Surfing, take the next step and help spread the word about your favorites. Share the artist band camps or streaming platform links on social media. Tell some of your friends about them or buy some merch. And remember, you can find all of the artist websites and streaming links on the episodes and show notes page of songsurfingpodcast.com. While you're spreading the love, it would really help the show if you could follow and leave a five-star review on the podcast player of your choice. If you're listening on the Apple or Google Podcasts, Apps, Stitcher, Podchaser, and I'm sure there's some others I'm forgetting, you'll have the option of leaving a five-star review. And that really helps the show to be more visible when people are browsing for new podcasts. Thanks. Thanks again to Kevin for hanging out and chatting this episode. And thank you for listening to Song Surfing. If you'd like to reach out with any comments or suggestions, you can email the show at songsurfingpodcasts at gmail.com. I hope that you give a listen to some of the podcast friends of the show in the Key of Q, No Repeat Podcast, and Chicago Fight Club. Links to all of those are uh, found in the show notes. Thanks to Josh Ween for letting me use his song Living in a Fishbowl as the theme music for the show. You can find Josh's music on Bandcamp by searching his artist name Ween Solo, spelled W-I-E-N-S-O-L-O. Thanks also to Patrick Moonbird for letting me use his song Little Pills as the outro music that you're hearing now. Patrick's music is available everywhere you stream music and is linked in the show notes. See you next time. <laughs>